So this morning I'm going to be reading our gospel lesson from the book of Matthew, um, chapter 4, and I'm going to be using the translation uh, of the message by Eugene Peterson. There are a lot of translations out there, and sometimes you have to kind of be a little bit pick, pick, picky yeah, picky, and choose ones that are um, m- more accurate to the original language, very important, and I think that Peterson does this well. So if you'll please stand. He does it while also putting this in some more um, understandable English. <laughs> so I just like the way that he wrote this particular passage some, from chapter 4. Next, Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for a test, and the devil was ready to give it. Jesus prepared for the test by fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and that left him, of course, in an extreme hunger, in a state of extreme hunger, which the devil took advantage of on the first test. Since you are God's son, speak the word and these and turn these stones into loaves of bread. And Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy, It takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes the steady streams of words from God's mouth. And for the second test, the devil took him to the holy city, where he sat him on top of the temple and said, Since you are God's son, jump! The devil goaded him by quoting Psalm 91. He has placed you in the care of angels and they will catch you so that you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. And Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare test the Lord your God. And for the third test, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain He gestured expansively, pointing out all the earth's kingdoms, how glorious they were. And then he said, they're yours, lock, stock, and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me, and they are yours. And Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. He backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. The test was over, and the devil left, and in his place, angels. Angels came to take care of Jesus' needs. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart be the words of your Holy Spirit, the words that your Spirit knows we need to hear so that by your Spirit we are able to live more faithfully. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So just for a moment, and I don't think this will take too long, but just for a moment, I want you to think that you have one of the most brilliant minds in all the world. Now, come on, you can do that. You are one of the most brilliant minds in all the world, at least in all the country, and you are at one of the most prestigious schools in the land, and you have knocked it out. You have met all your requirements, passed all your tests, done everything you have to do to exceed and to excel, and you have got it going. And you're ready to graduate. 
and you are in high demand. People want your skills, and they'll pay you a lot of money for them. And so you, have to, you can write your own tickets. The world is at your fingertips. All can be yours. If you pass one last test, you have to know how to swim. You have to pass a swim test in order to graduate from MIT. Seriously. Somebody in the last service said that you used to have to pass a swim test to get out of Chapel Hill. Still true? Okay, all right. So you have to pass this. Now, this is MIT, one of the best schools in the country. And you still have... (laughs) Come on, y'all. I got to get something after yesterday, after this week of basketball. Anyway, I digress. You've got to pass a test, a swim test, to get out of this amazing school, brightest among us, the best among us in all things technology. And so the Boston Globe did a story on this test several years ago, and they said that some of the students arrive at MIT just ready to go. They jump in the pool in the first month, and they pass the test, and they're done. But some of the students procrastinate. Imagine. They procrastinate. They wait to the last minute and and they come to that graduation day and some of them still have to pass a test and they don't like it a bit. Some students arrive, they have to take swimming 101 at MIT and they can't stand that because they'll fall behind. In a very competitive school, they'll fall behind if they have to take swimming and yet they do. They have to prepare. They have to get ready. Some of the students say, well, I'm aquaphobic. I can't do that. I'm buoyancy challenged. I can't do that. <laughs> and yet MIT is, has maintained it over the years. You've got to pass a test. You've got to get in the pool. You've got to swim. And I think the lesson is a little bit larger than just passing a swim test, though important. The lesson is get in the game, right? Experience can count for so much more than just book learning. One of the lifeguards said that some of the students actually want to know at what angle they should hold their arms when they swim. (laughs) Get in the pool. Get in the game. Experience life. There's only so much you can learn from reading the book and working the formulas and listening to podcasts and doing things online. There's just so much you can learn, and it's not enough. No matter how brilliant, how accomplished, how ready you think you are, it's so important to experience life in a multitude of forms. And Matthew 4, I love it because Matthew 4, as challenging as it might be to think of Jesus being tempted, what's actually going on here, among other things, is that Jesus is getting in the game of being fully human as well as fully divine. Just three chapters before, God has chosen to come to earth, Emmanuel, God with us in flesh and blood, and he has begun his ministry on earth. Just in chapter three, Jesus has been baptized along with the rest of us, sinners that gathered there on the banks of the Jordan River. He's gotten in the game. He's been baptized. He's at the height, perhaps, of his early ministry. The Spirit has just told anybody who would listen that this is God's Son. We should listen to him. And immediately after his baptism, we are told that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he gets into the game just as human as the rest of us. 
The mystery of faith is that he is also fully divine. And I think far too often we kind of err on the side of divine and we don't understand how it is that Jesus is so human that he too must face trials and temptations. He too, as the text, as Eugene Peterson puts it, has to pass this test that the devil was ready to give. And we begin to understand how important it is to live into our faith, to practice our faith. And as we've gone over these weeks and we've talked about different disciplines, that's what we're doing. We're figuring out how it is to live day in and day out so that when the test comes, and it will, so that when the temptation arrives on our doorstep or when we go meet it more than halfway, by clicking on a site or showing up at the wrong place at the wrong time, by placing one more bet, by whatever, gossiping, whatever. When temptation comes our way or so that we may steer clear of it altogether, we have these practices, these disciplines, these ways of being in life, in the Christian life, faithfulness along this journey. And we're going to be talking about all sorts of wilderness stories over these next few weeks of Lent because it is in the wilderness that God teaches some pretty powerful lessons. And that's what we have here. We have Jesus being led into the wilderness for this test. And I th- here's where I'm going on this. And I-, I told you guys, I don't like it when the Holy Spirit messes with me on Saturday. I want the Holy Spirit all through the week when I'm preparing for a sermon. No, don't do it Saturday, Spirit. I'm ready but for the most part. Don't do it. But yet, it, this one got me. Probably because I'm not very good at it. Jesus prepared... It's good enough for Jesus. It's good enough for us. Jesus prepared by practicing the discipline of fasting. And thank you very much. I'd rather skip over that one. Not very good at that one. And yet again, Jesus prepared for these temptations, for these trials, for these walks, for this time in the wilderness by fasting. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Now, biblically, scripturally, we know that fasting typically has to do with food. We see it all throughout the the Hebrew Bible. We see it throughout the times in in the New Testament. And it typically has to do with food, refraining to become more aligned with God and God's will, to be denying of self so that you may listen and hear what it is that God is leading you to so that we all may be prepared for the temptation, for the trial, for the test. But folks, I don't think that fasting is simply about food, not for us. Richard Foster, whose book we've been using for this series, and he says that fasting is withholding or abstaining from anything in life that throws our faith journeys off balance. And so the question is, in this text, in this preparation invitation, this new first Sunday of Lent, what is it that you or I need to abstain from so that balance is restored in our life? And more than that, so that right relationship, which is what practice and spiritual disciplines are about, right relationship is restored where God is God and we are not. 
What do we need to let go of? Opinions, as the video said, preferences, pride, social media. That'll get me all hot and ticked off too often than not. Not good for me. Throws me off balance. I begin to despair. <laughs> Lose a little hope every once in a while. What do you need? What do I need to abstain from? Incessant noise. That's what our moment of silence is. Solid, do you need more solitude? What is it that we can do? As Jesus did. To prepare for the journey. The trials, the celebrations, the ups, the downs, the temptations, and the challenges. That's what's going on here. Jesus, Scripture is telling us, reminding us, that if Jesus needed to prepare, if Jesus needed to practice disciplines, and we see him doing this all throughout the Gospels, so do we. And it's about not just restoring balance. It's also about a maturing of faith where easy answers are not all that's needed in a complicated life. It's one thing to, to enter into a relationship with God, to be justified by faith and grace in Jesus, and through the grace of Jesus Christ, and yet to go on, to mature, to live day in and day out, to face whatever it is this world throws at us or whatever it is we go seeking that we shouldn't? How is it that we prepare and mature in our disciplines and our practices? It's so interesting to me, one commentary I read said that all three of these temptations really are just variances on the same theme, that theme of our desire to control, our desire to have power, our desire to think that it's all up to us. They're not necessarily, the devil doesn't tempt people, mature people, with things that seem either cut and dry between evil and good or, or good and bad. More often than not, the devil will come to us, sidle up to us, as he did with Christ in the wilderness, sidle up to us and offer us options between things that are good and yet not holy. And as our faith matures, we're called upon to learn and discipline by being in the game, getting in the pool, what the difference is between the two. Eating bread is not evil. Got to eat. Got to live. He's hungry. That's not evil. And yet the, the devil's trying to manipulate and get Jesus' allegiance away from God. What is it that would lead us away from God. Not necessarily wrong outright, but far from holy if it takes away from our journey of faith. And the devil even quotes scripture, not at all bad, not at all evil. The Bible says, Jesus, that if you throw yourself down from this, from this building, you will be taken care of by the angels from the cliff. You will be taken care of by the angels. Not one toe will be stubbed. It's quoting scripture. Not at all evil, except he's manipulating the very word of God to get Jesus's allegiance. To throw Jesus off kilter, out of focus, to take away that purpose of his life. Not with evil or bad, with good. And yet out of alignment. 
manipulated, used as a weapon, used as a deterrent, used to control behavior. We do it. I've seen it. I've done it. Well, the Bible says, and it does, all kinds of things. But how is it that the mature Christian, that those of us on this journey wrestle and work with God's Spirit, seeking to understand the Holy Word of God. Not bad. Not at all. Good. But just not holy sometimes. And as we practice these disciplines, as we prepare for this journey, we begin to learn the difference. And and it, it takes effort. There's no getting away from that. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. Look at all this that's before us. I'll give them to you. It's not bad to be in charge, not necessarily, but it's bad to use power in a way that isn't holy, that is unfocused and undisciplined. It drives me nuts. We get into these debates over, over Christians and authority and government. We spend all this time and energy thinking that that's where the power lies. And we spend time and energy and money. And yet it's a deterrent. The good seeks to replace the holy far too often for believers. And that is what we must contend with. And that is where these practices become part of our preparation, just like Jesus's, who was fully human and knew what we would face. Each and every day in one way or another, the choice before us. How do we choose? We work at it. We practice, we study, we pray, we worship, we fast, even that. We focus on where it is God wants to lead us. I think one of the other overarching themes of this text is God's provision. We're going to see that throughout the desert stories, throughout Lent. God provides for God's people in the ways that God knows we need to be fed. And so often in our attempt to take charge, to be in control of of others and of ourselves, we begin to rely on ourselves. We're independent. We're self-sufficient. We don't need anybody for anything. We can do it. Did you graduate from MIT, anybody? Got it, right? We're the best, we're the brightest, we've got it all under control. We can provide what we need, but God in those wilderness stories says, invites us to understand that in this journey of faith and life, it's about God's provision and how it is God will offer to us what we need and I think how it is God will offer to the world through us, the church, the body of Christ, what the world needs as well in body and in soul. Bread and scripture and practices and life together, journeying along body and soul, God is our ultimate provider. And it's Communion Sunday, and one of the things that we celebrate and talk about in communion is that these are gifts from God, the symbol of God's provision. And as we receive and as we share, we are reminded again and again it's a practice. 
It reminds us that God is God and we are not and that all that we have, all who we are, is just a simple gift from a God who provides what his children need. And so we gather around this table Acknowledging our need, acknowledging God's provision, acknowledging that just like Jesus, we need to prepare for today and for tomorrow and for the temptations and the trials that come our way. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do give you thanks for this holy meal that reminds us that you have provided all that we need, that you are our guide our leader, our comforter, our redeemer, our savior. You are the one who leads us not into temptation, although we get there sometimes ourselves, but that you are the one who offers us a way to life and life abundant through your gifts, these gifts, the symbol before us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So what is it that gets in your way? What is it that you or I need to fast from, abstain from, so that balance is restored, so that right relationship is enacted? It takes practice. It takes preparation. Go knowing that God will give you whatever it is you need for this journey. Amen.